This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorite. And now we continue with our Opportunity America series that's sponsored by Coke Industries, which employs some 67,000 Americans. Georgia Pacific, a Coke company, makes many of the paper products we use every day, from tissue and toilet paper to paper towels and more. And Alex Cortez now brings us the story of one of Georgia Pacific's employees, Vic Billingsley, who lives in Hattiesburg, in our own home state of Mississippi. In 1998, Vic Billingsley was diagnosed with non-alcoholic cirrhosis of the liver, although Vic was able to live a pretty healthy normal life for years. It wasn't until 2007, nine whole years later, that his doctor said, you need a transplant. Kind of all of these things going through my mind as to how do I escape this? There's no, there's no exit door. This is what the cards I've been dealt. I got into a scenario to where your mind is, is moving at a hyper speed and it's, it's, one of those things that's just absolutely ever-present. You, you can't escape it. I would go to sleep at night only after being just totally exhausted because I couldn't turn it off. You know, it was, it, was, it was so pressing on me. And I would finally fall asleep after just being totally exhausted and would go through the experience to where, you know, I'd only sleep probably maybe a couple hours at a time and when I'd wake up, I'd go through this thing to where I'd go, wow, that was, that was, a, that was a terrible dream. That was, that was a bad dream. And then the realization would hit. You know, you'd get that gut punch of it wasn't a dream. You know, this is, this is your reality. And that replayed itself a whole bunch of times. And then came the part to where you've, You've got to be admitted into the hospital to do the testing to see where you fall as a candidate for a transplant because just because you need one is not necessarily a guarantee that you're going to get one. So then that's when the waiting game began. constantly had my cell phone with me, you know, everywhere I went. Anytime the phone rang, you know, the first thing you did was flip it over and look at the caller ID. And there again, every time it rang, you're, you're sitting there wondering if this is the time that you're going to get that call. The call came in on a Sunday morning. Actually, it was a, about 6, 6.30 in the morning. Catherine picked up the phone and kind of looks at the caller ID and she, she, she asked me, she said, who is, who is, it says Sanders Foreman. And I came wide awake because that was the transplant surgeon at Tulane. So I answered the phone and he says, this is Vic, this is Dr. Foreman. I just want to let you know we have a liver available, but I wanted to talk to you about it. What we the situation we have is there's a five and a half month old little girl in Miami, Florida, 
that is also in need of a transplant, but she only needs a certain part of it. And we can have the remainder of it if you elect to accept this. He said, we hadn't, we hadn't really done this before here, but we think we can handle it. He said, the only problem will be where we uh, face the liver, which means where they, where they make that separation cut that when we put it back into you, we may have some bleeding issues, and that's a concern. But we but we feel confident we can handle it. Well, uh, I was full awake and trying to process what he's telling me, and I asked the question. I said, "Well, can I can I can I think about it?" And his response was, I'll call you back in four minutes because there's also a time consideration when they have these organs available. So I wanted to talk to my brother and my, my sister, her being a nurse practitioner, him being a physician, and, and kind of get their opinion on it. So I got them on the phone, my brother's in Florida and my sister's local, and we started discussing it, and then we also got Dr. Florman on the phone and started kind of discussing it and talking about it, all the different ramifications and such as that. And my, my sister finally said, well, the good Lord's got us to this point. You know, we just have to, that's where we need to place our trust. And I say, we go for it. And so the decision was made that, okay, we'll go for it. You know, the reality kind of hit real hard at that time that this is this is actually gonna happen now. You know, it's like it's like being on a roller coaster ride, you can't get off in the middle. You gotta ride it to the end. Well, I had worried and, and fretted so much through the whole experience. And at the time that I got that call, I I was of the 100% thought that I was going to go down there and I was not gonna come back. I just, I did not believe that I was gonna survive the operation. And so what that brought onto the plate was that morning, I honestly thought I was looking at my kids for the last time. Mm. It's kind of coming back. Mm. And you're listening to Vic Billingsley, his story of one of the big moments of his life, the turning point in his life, being told there was a liver available, but this operation was going to be difficult. He assumed the worst, looking at his kids, what he thought would be for sure in his own mind the last time. And by the way, Vic found comfort in his co-workers at Georgia Pacific who offered him a vacation time, organized fundraisers for him, and prayed with him. When we come back, more of this remarkable story, our Opportunity America series with Coke Industries continues here on Our American Story.
continue here with Our American Stories and Vic Billingsley's story. And when we last left off, Vic was certain that he'd die in this operation of a lifetime. He just didn't see any hope. By the way, he'd lost his dad to liver cancer as well. And he was about to share a liver with a five-month-old baby named Kara. But let's go back to the story because, well, he was certain he was never going to see his kids again. Uh, I wound up uh, on my kitchen floor, on my hands and knees, and I was absolutely sobbing. And I think I had scared my children quite, quite a bit. Here's Vic's daughter, Haley. So I was six years old. And I had no clue that my father was sick, not even a hint. Every time he had a doctor's appointment, he would, you know, not make a big deal about it. He'd say, oh, you're going to go stay with your family friend this week, or you're going to go stay with your friend from school this week, and just kind of played it off like I just needed to be babysat because they were doing something. But turns out, all of those times he dropped me off, they were going to hospitals and meeting with doctors and trying to figure out a game plan for his liver transplant. And dad just kind of had this look on his face, like something wasn't right, but you couldn't tell what it was, like something was out of place. I just remember looking at him and thinking like, what's wrong with you? (laughs) And he just kept looking at us and staring at us and he watched us for a good bit of time, and then he just starts crying out of nowhere. And I've never seen my father cry. Like, not, never before, never after. My dad was on his hands and knees crying on the kitchen floor because he thought he was going to die. He thought he was going to leave us forever, and he would never see his children again. And me being clueless and innocent and just trying to allay a situation that was very stressful. Um, I was sitting in a chair above my father while he was on his hands and knees, and I was just petting his head saying, it's okay, Daddy, it's okay. I don't know what's going on, but you'll be okay. There I am on my hands and knees, and and she, she kind of hugged my head and started patting me and, you know, saying, it'll be all right. You know, she, she didn't really know what was going on, but uh, she was trying to comfort me. She didn't know what was happening, but she was trying to help me out. And that memory just sticks out to me. So I finally, finally composed myself enough to get up and... Uh, I didn't want to let go of him, but had to. And even though he was crying, he didn't tell me why. I just got dropped off at a family member's house to be babysat for a week, and nobody told me what was going on. Nobody updated me. Nothing. We didn't clue them up a lot about this as the children. We didn't sit them down and say, hey, this is what this is what we're going through. We kind of kept them in the dark, you know, 
Whether that was a good decision or a, a bad decision, I don't know. It was just what the right decision felt at that time, that if they had to worry about what I was going through, that it would it'd be very hard for them to to go through. And we didn't know what their level of understanding. We didn't want to scare them to death. So that was kind of where our decision and not really telling them what was going on came from. So we left and started heading toward New Orleans. The whole time I'm thinking, if I come back to Hattiesburg, it's gonna be in a, a long car with curtains on the side. And finally make it to the floor where things start happening. So they start prepping me, and you know, because they're still waiting. The liver is from the donor is over in Baton Rouge. So they're having to take care of getting that organ and splitting it and then making the transport over to New Orleans and then to Miami for Cara. Dr. Foreman walks in and basically says, we're gonna get you through this. He said, but there's a few other things you need to know if we go into this and we open you up. He said, if I, if I find any evidence of cancer outside the liver, then we're gonna sew you back up and we're not gonna do the transplant. We're gonna offer that up to somebody else. That was kind of a new twist to it too. I didn't, I didn't understand, you know, I, I understood what he was saying, but I didn't, I hadn't had previous knowledge of that. So had he opened me up and there'd been something else, then I'd probably been close to the end of the trail. had carried pictures of, of the kids, of Jacob, Noah, and Haley, with me down there. I told the nurse, I said, I want that to go in the OR with me. Um, she wrapped it up in a sterile bag or whatever, and put it on the bed with me. And I remember going into the operating suite and <laughs> felt like I was going into a freezer. It was very cold in there and they slid over to a stainless steel table and got the happy juice and was kind of out of it for a while. <laughs> I woke up and nobody was there and I'm wondering what's going on. I've got a pretty good bit of cutting on my abdomen and a lot of discomfort, but that discomfort is very much overshadowed by the fact that I'm still alive. Yeah, I hurt, but even hurt can be an enjoyable experience when, when you're able to hurt, as opposed to you don't have to worry about hurting anymore. And little Cara also survived the transplant. And she was such a, a small, delicate, child and to sit there and think that she had gone through the same thing that I'd gone through and there's some stark differences there. First off, I went in with knowledge. I went in knowing, well, I mean, as much knowledge as, as could be given to me. 
why the wherefores, whereas this small, beautiful baby, she didn't know why she was experiencing all of this. You know, that's that's kind of what's playing in my mind is, is she's going through all of this, this pain, discomfort, and nobody can tell her or explain to her why. She's just having to go through it on her own to a certain degree. And then at the same time, coupled with that, it was a totally different perspective when I looked at Keisha and Kurt to imagine what they as parents were going through. When you're sitting there and, and you're virtually helpless to do anything for your child, you know, I'm sure they, they suffered tremendously from having to watch this occur and mine from the whole other flip side of the perspective of where I felt like I was going to leave children behind. To me, that's a huge dynamic. And the thought goes then to, for she and I to live, somebody else had to perish. But through their gift, look what they've done. This, this beautiful child was able to continue living. I was able to continue being a parent. And you're listening to Vic Billingsley. And my goodness, what empathy he has and should have. And I keep picturing the father on his hands and knees crying. And the baby girl consoling her dad, not knowing why, because he didn't tell her. And I think a lot of us would tell and a lot of us wouldn't. And that's a individual parent's decision. If I had a really young kid, I wouldn't tell. Because then they just worry like crazy. And when we come back, we'll continue with a compelling and beautiful story of Vic Billingsley, part of our Opportunity America series brought to us by the great folks at Coke Industries. And you can learn more about their incredible work at cokeind.com. That's K-O-C-H-I-N-D.com. This is Our American Story. back with our American stories and Vic Billingsley's story of successfully receiving a liver transplant, a topic that his daughter Haley decided to write about in an essay competition for college scholarships that her dad's company, Georgia Pacific, offered and led to more than a scholarship. Here's Haley reading a portion of her essay. At a time when the world seemed gigantic and my sole worry was whether I would get to play with toys or watch TV after a long day of school, Agony slipped into my life in an unexpected way. March 2007 was a month of worry, confusion, and doubt. My father seemed invincible to me. He was the strongest man I knew, and yet he was dying? As the innocently clueless six-year-old I was, I lived my life imagining my father as an infallible hero that could do anything, never imagining that in less than a week, 
he would be fighting for his life on an operating table. My father was incredibly brave throughout this process. He was still the man walking up and down the sidelines at my soccer game, and he was still the one picking me up every time I fell. All this time, my father remained calm and steady in the most turbulent times of his life. Abruptly discovering that my father was previously sick and recovering from a major surgery changed my whole viewpoint on life and the human condition. I went from believing that death and agony only existed in storybooks to contemplating the intimate reality of the silent suffering of my valiant father. I could no longer imagine that my father was invincible and I began to understand the fragility of life. I learned that people are human, no matter how strong they may seem, and that you cannot rely on the promise that they will be here tomorrow. Nearly losing my father taught me to love deeper and live more honestly, because life happens too fast to delay speaking the truth. I have become more compassionate to the sufferings of others, and I am immeasurably thankful to still have my dad today. With his example, I live my life with faith and confidence that storms will come and I can face them no matter the outcome. But the outcome of this essay was winning. I was shocked. I just thought it was going to be one of those things where, you know, kind of like buying a raffle ticket, something you do and you don't ever really hear the results and it's something that someone else wins but you don't win. You just do it to support a cause or to say that you tried. There was a scholarship um, luncheon from the Georgia Pacific Scholarship at my dad's branch. And someone in his office pulled me aside and said, Haley, we have a surprise for your dad. We'd love to, we'd love your participation in it. And I said, of course, anything to pull something over my dad. I love messing with my dad. Good or bad, <laughs> I love messing with them. And so she told me that they were trying to get in contact with Kara and schedule something to where she could meet my father. And when she told me that, I was completely shocked. I said, oh my gosh, that would be incredible. I freaked out a little bit, but it was, it was hard to keep a secret because it's something that would make my dad so happy if he knew that was happening. But I couldn't ruin the surprise. And then a few weeks later, Bill Worley with GP calls me and says, hey, uh, I was reading through these essays and the one your daughter wrote was pretty interesting and kind of wanted to learn a little bit more about it. And he thought it was enough to do a story on. And Joy Light and I can come down to Hattiesburg and talk with you and Haley and set it up for Georgia Pacific to film for them. So, you know, we'd be talking about filming and we would get in arguments about how much food we needed for the day. And it was so hard not to just say, Dad, Cara's coming, we need food for her and her family. <laughs> and then that day, I remember it was, you know, we set it up like a, a TV set where everything behind the scenes is quiet. And making a noise is just disruptive and not needed. Bill said, well, let's take a break for a minute. So we, we were taking a break and then we started 
going back and Haley said, well, I, I need to run out to the, to the car to get something. And, and I said, well, okay, you know, and she didn't want to have to step through all of the stuff that they had out there for the, the lighting and all of that. She wanted to go through the back gate. It's kind of a big, tall wooden gate. And I'd tried to go through there the day before and it was kind of difficult. So I said, no, don't go through there. Go, go, go through the front. And she was kind of, I, I didn't know why she wanted to go through the back. So she said, okay, she, she went out the front or whatever. And I remember meeting Kara and meeting her parents and welcoming them and just embracing them fully and just having my own private moment with them to just embrace them and say, it's been a long time coming and I'm so sad it's been 12 years and we just, we're just now meeting. And so I had that little moment with them and then I walked them through the back gate and we went up the back porch and my dad was facing the porch door. And so when I opened the door, that door makes a lot of noise. And I remember my dad looking at me in the eyes, kind of with this look of, have you lost your mind? You know we're supposed to be quiet. Why are you making all that noise? The door's opening up and I'm thinking, why is Haley coming back through that way? Well, she walks through and then... <laughs> my dad's just completely confused and I move out of the doorway. Then Carl walks out and I'm just totally astonished that because I'm sitting there with my eyes seeing her, but my mind can't fathom that, they're, that what I'm seeing is real. And my dad's look shifts from confusion and annoyance to just utter shock and awe and amazement. You know, she walks up and I, and I instant recognition because I've seen her so much on Facebook and, and then Kurt and Keisha walk in and, and I am just totally blown away by seeing them there. And it's still it's living that moment. I just was one I could not believe. And I, I'm, and everybody's kind of smiling with this knowing smile. And I realized I had been sandbagged that, that I was the only one that didn't have any knowledge about it. And, you know, getting to, to finally give Kara a hug and Keisha and Kurt to finally see them and meet them. It was just, it was just a, an awesome experience. And it just felt right. We're 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 bound together. We we have a bond. Uh, it it sounds a little maybe sounds a little funny, but I do feel a very strong bond with her. And it's 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 difficult to explain, but we have a tie. It kind of brings us together in a, in a fashion that I don't know of any other people that are, that are kind of tied together like she and I are, but it's, it's unique and it's a blessing. It is unique and a blessing and beautiful. And what a story, Vic Billingsley's family story, his own personal story. As Vic told us, he and Kara seem very different on the outside. He's an old white guy and she's a young black lady.
but on the inside they share a liver and a common belief that they're children of God, and that stuff really matters. Unlike the rest of the media that profits off division, we bring you stories like this of Americans coming together in beautiful ways, and we do it each and every day, folks. Our Opportunity America series, sponsored by Coke Industries. Learn more about their work and incredible employees like Vic Billingsley at cokeind.com. That's K-O-C-H-I-N-D.com. And by the way, that letter of his daughters, there are two kinds of fathers, folks. A father who gets a letter like that and a father that doesn't. Vic Billingsley's story here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and now a story from one of our regular contributors, Bert Rossica. In 2012 for reasons known only to Providence I decided to type a list of the reasons why a manual typewriter is better than a computer. My intent when I started was to come up with 99 reasons. The reason I settled on 99 was because back in 1985, Tom Boswell, who was then the beat reporter for baseball for the Washington Post, was given an assignment by his editor to come up with the 99 reasons why baseball is better than football. And as he tells the story, he comes into the office at 9 in the morning and his editor tells him he needs on his desk by 12 o'clock at least 99 reasons. Boswell goes back to his office a little anxious that he may or may not be able to accomplish the task in the time allotted and proceeds to write on his typewriter. According to him, it took him 45 minutes to complete the task and it became an instant classic and part of the pantheon of baseball. The reason I had a newfound appreciation for the typewriter had to do with the fact that our then 12-year-old son shows up one day with a typewriter. I asked him, why in the world did you buy a typewriter? And he told me, I always wanted one, Dad. I thought, all right. He got the typewriter at a thrift store in our town. And the reason he was at the thrift store was because at the age of 12, he decided he did not want to attend the cotillion at his school wearing khaki color chinos. He wanted to wear Nantucket red colored chinos. And I told my wife, I don't feel like spending like $100 at Brooks Brothers or Nordstrom's or some other place for a kid to wear Nantucket red chinos for six months and then grow out of them. So I said, take him to the thrift store. So he came back from the thrift store without the chinos, but with the typewriter. So I said, what did you pay for it? 
$15, Dad. $15 for a typewriter, okay. The guy wanted 30, Dad, but I told him it didn't work, so I'd only give him 15. I tried to get it for 10, but he insisted on 15. The kid's 12 years old, negotiating with the thrift store manager or owner or whatever he was. So he has this $15 typewriter that doesn't work. Why'd you get a typewriter if it doesn't work? He said, I figured you could fix it, Dad. I said, all right, it's a reasonable answer. Let's take it down to the bench and see what we can do. So I take it down to my workbench. Finally, we get the thing working. Well, we proceed to then argue over who gets to use the typewriter. I wanted to use it. He didn't want to let me. I argued, I fixed it. He argued, I paid for it. Why don't you get your own typewriter? So I did. Then I got another and then another, and then another. And the next thing I know, I'm collecting and restoring old manual typewriters. And I started writing. And in the process of that, I realized writing on a typewriter is way more enjoyable than writing on a computer. One day I'm typing away on the typewriter, writing heaven knows what, and I'm thinking, this is great. I also start thinking about the Boswell list. So what if I can come up with 99 reasons why a typewriter is better than a computer? So, put a piece of paper in the typewriter and I started to type. And here's what I came up with. I'm going to go through the list. Some of them are a little redundant. In fact, I think some are absolutely redundant. Now, for those of you who have never typed on a typewriter, you're just going to have to use your imagination. And for those of us old enough to have typed on a typewriter, I think some of these things might strike a chord. Speaking of which, the number one reason is there are no power chords. Two, no chords connecting to a printer. Three, no cords connecting to an external hard drive. Four, no cords connecting to anything. Five, no software to install. Six, no software to download. Ten, the typewriter can't crash. Eleven, no fatal system error messages. Twenty-four, no font to choose. 25. No font color to choose. Unless you have a two-tone ribbon. 26. No font size to choose. 27. You don't have to format your font. 29. No print button to push. 33. No leaving your desk to retrieve your printed work. 34. The typewriter can reflect your mood. If you are upset and you type harder as a result, it will show in your work because the keys will penetrate the paper. 39, I like baseball. Shirley Povich used the typewriter. Need I say more? Forty. There is no chance what you type will be uploaded inadvertently to the internet 
for all the world to see whether you wanted to or not. Typewriters are secure and private. 41. There is no spell check. You need to learn how to spell and use a dictionary. In the process, you will improve your vocabulary. 42. There is no grammar check. Read Strunk and White and learn how to use it. You will improve your grammar. 43. No annoying perforated red underlines telling you something is misspelled. 44. No annoying perforated green underlines telling you something isn't punctuated properly. They are not always correct anyway. 51. If you are working late and happen to fall asleep at the keyboard with one of your fingers pressing against the key, you won't wake up later to discover that you have just typed 2,359 pages of the letter K. Fifty-three, no mouse. Fifty-six, you don't get interrupted with emails. Fifty-seven, no one tries to friend you. Sixty-seven, when I am working on my typewriter, it can't be confused with playing solitaire or shopping on the web. Seventy-one, when I type, I am not distracted by all the other things on a computer that are ultimately less fulfilling. 72. Most of the good old typewriters were made in America. 77. There are no gamers on typewriters. 78. If a typewriter breaks, they rarely if ever do, you take it to some old guy that has interesting stories to tell rather than some young kid that doesn't know anything. You may not know it, but you probably have more in common with that old guy, even if you're not old. 79. You don't need extended warranties. You can't get them anyway. 83. If someone sees you or hears you typing on a typewriter, they will stop and ask you about it, and you will have something interesting to discuss. No one ever asks me about my computer. 91. If I want to quote-unquote carbon copy someone, I get to use real carbon paper. 92. Now my kids can learn what real carbon paper is and why they CC someone. 93. Another personal one. I now have a use for those three bottles of whiteout I have been saving in my desk for so many years. 99. You never have to reboot your typewriter. And what a terrific piece by Bert Rossica. 99 reasons why a typewriter is better than a computer. I still have one. I don't use it, but my dad still does. He types everything up on little cards. When I get a birthday card, it, the, the envelope is typed. He is still hacking away at the typewriter and loves it. And by the way, I really do remember that Tom Boswell piece in the Washington Post. It is dazzling. And that's 99 reasons why baseball is better than football. And we got to call Tom and see if he can do that. It was written many years ago. 
but my goodness, it still stands. By the way, one of my favorites on our show, Mike Levin, who is the COO and the president of Las Vegas Sands, ran Holiday Inn Express, a great hotel guy in the business for 50-plus years and a legend. He sent us 54 things I learned in 54 years. If you have a story, a list, send it to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Bert Rossica's 99 Reasons Why a Typewriter is Better Than a Computer here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Ruald Dahl was a single-minded adventurer and an eternal child who gave us the iconic Willy Wonka and Matilda Wormwood. Here's Greg Hengler with the story of one of the greatest authors and eccentric characters of the modern age whose work still delights millions around the world today. Ruald Dahl is one of the most celebrated children's authors of all time. He published 19 books over the course of his writing career, many of which have been adapted into musicals, films, TV shows, and more. His name is synonymous with strangeness and magic. Some of Ruald Dahl's most iconic works include James and the Giant Peach, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and the BFG, just to name a few. Here's Ruald Dahl explaining where his book ideas came from. They always, of course, start with some tiny germ somewhere, and you rattle it around and uh, hope for the best and build up a story. I, I don't know, you, it's got to start with something. Ruwal hated school. What he did like was stopping by the candy shop with his friends on the way home. Here's Robert Lindsay reading from Ruwal Dahl's autobiography. When I was seven, my mother decided I should go to a proper boy's school. It was called Clandath Cathedral School, and it stood right under the shadow of the cathedral. The sweet shop at Clandath was the very center of our lives. To us, it was what a bar is to a drunk or a church to a bishop. Without it, there would have been little to live for. But it had one terrible drawback, this sweet shop. The woman who owned it was a horror. The owner's name was Mrs. Pratchett. She never welcomed us when we went in. And the only time she spoke were when she said things like, I'm watching you, so keep your thieving fingers off them chocolates. Mrs. Pratchett would dig the candy out of the jars for the boys with her dirty hands. The boys ate the candy anyway, of course. But one day, they decided to get back at her. My four friends and I had come across a loose floorboard at the back of the classroom. One day, we, uh, we lifted up and found a dead mouse. 
It's an exciting discovery. Hold on a tick, I said. Why don't we slip it into one of Mrs. Pratchett's jars of sweets? Then, when she puts her dirty hand in to, to grab a handful, she'll grab a stinky dead mouse instead. Here's Rual Dahl. When you're old enough to, to, to uh, and experienced enough to, to be a competent writer, uh, by then you become uh, pompous and, and uh, uh, adult, grown up, and, 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 and you've lost all your jokiness. You, you don't have any... any, any and, and so, unless you are a kind of undeveloped uh, adult, and you still have an enormous amount of childishness in you, and you giggle at funny stories and jokes and things, I don't think you can do it. The five of us left school and headed for the sweet shop. We were tremendously jazzed up. We felt like a gang of desperados setting out to rob a train. We were the victors now, and Mrs. Pratchett was the victim. She stood behind the counter, and her small, malignant pig eyes watched us suspiciously. When I saw Mrs. Pratchett turn her head away for a couple of seconds, I lifted the heavy glass lid of the gobstopper jar and dropped the mouse in. The following day, Mrs. Pratchett marched into the cathedral school pointed out the five boys she suspected to the headmaster, and they were ordered to his dreaded study. We didn't speak as we made our way down the long corridor into the headmaster's dreaded study. He raised the cane high above his shoulder, and as he brought it down, it made a loud swishing sound, and there was a crack, like a pistol shot, as it struck. Waits bottom. Harder! Harder! Shrieked her voice from over in the corner. We looked around, and there was the loathsome figure of Mrs. Pratchett. Lay in term! Here's Rouen. Vicious people are much more interesting than, than nice, good people. There's nothing more boring than a, than a totally good person. They've got to have quirks and bad habits and, and things like that. You, you can have a nice one as well, the chucked in there, but, but uh, if you had a book full of nothing but nice people, it'd be awfully boring. Mrs. Pratchett would become the inspiration for Miss Trunchbull and Matilda, the first of four books by Dahl ranked among the School Library Journal's top 100 all-time children's books. This is more than any other writer on the list. Matilda was made into a movie in 1996 and starred Danny DeVito. Here's Robert Lindsay reading from Matilda. It's like a war, Matilda said. You're darn right it's like a war, Hortensia cried, and the casualties are terrific. We are the Crusaders, the gallant army fighting for our lives with hardly any weapons at all. And the Trunchbull is the prince of darkness, the foul serpent, the fiery dragon with all the weapons at her command. I've never liked authority. I've never got on very well in institutions. 
It's wrong, of course, to be like that because uh, you couldn't run schools and institutions like that if, if, if everyone was like that. Uh, there shouldn't be too many rebels around. There shouldn't be. But you are one. Well, I, I, yes, but you, you get much mellower as you get older, you know. I'm still a rebel in some respects, yes, very much so. I don't like uh, conformists, people who conform. And what a story so far. By the way, I love his description of Pratchett, her malignant pig eyes. We were all laughing in the studio because we've known a Mrs. Pratchett or two in our lives, all of us. But when we come back, more of the story of Ruald Dahl here on Our American Stories. we continue with our American stories and the story of Rual Dahl. Let's pick up where we last left off. When Rual's mother heard about his caning, she was so upset with the school that she sent him to a different one. Rual was only nine, and he was terribly homesick. The head of the school was again awful, another caner. And at night, Rual slept facing toward home, and quietly cried himself to sleep. He began writing to his mother every week, and it became a habit he would continue until the day she died, about 40 years later. Here's Rual reading from James and the Giant Peach, published in 1961. Until he was four years old, James Henry Trotter had a happy life. He lived peacefully with his mother and father in a beautiful house beside the sea. There were always plenty of other children for him to play with, and there was the sandy beach for him to run about on, and the ocean to paddle in. It was the perfect life for a small boy. Then one day, James's mother and father went to London to do some shopping, and there a terrible thing happened. Both of them suddenly got eaten up, in full daylight, mind you, and on a crowded street, by an enormous angry rhinoceros which had escaped from the London Zoo. Now this, as you can well imagine, was a rather nasty experience for two such gentle parents. But in the long run, it was far nastier for James than it was for them. Their troubles were all over in a jiffy. They were dead and gone in 35 seconds flat. Poor James, on the other hand, was still very much alive. And all at once, he found himself alone and frightened in a vast, unfriendly world. When Rual was 13, he was sent to another boarding school. There were more rules and more canings. The school, however, was near the town where the Cadbury Company was located. Cadbury would often ask the boys to rate their chocolate bars. Dahl took these duties very seriously. Here's Dahl. We were given them free and we tasted them and, and there was a bit of paper and then we marked them all from 0 to 10. I realized then, you see, that, that this vast chocolate factory had in it a room, a secret room, where fully grown men and women spent their entire time trying to think up and invent new chocolate bars for children. Here's Rual's daughter, Lucy Dahl, and Robert Lindsay reading from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. 
Willy Wonka was partially my father. I think he based most of his adult heroes on parts of himself, parts of his dreams of glory, parts of characteristics of himself that he liked in himself. Did you know that he's invented chocolate ice cream so that it stays cold for hours and hours without being in the refrigerator? That's impossible, said little Charlie, staring at his grandfather. Of course it's impossible, said Grandpa Joe. It's completely absurd. But Mr. Willy Wonka has done it. Here's Ruald Dahl's authorized biographer, Donald Sturrock. Roald wrote the screenplay for the movie of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and had very high hopes for it, but he was very disappointed when they came to shoot it. He thought Wonka was more mercurial and more weird, and he had Spike Milligan in mind, and they didn't like him. So it ended up with Gene Wilder. He thought Gene Wilder just wasn't eccentric enough, was too soft. By July 1933, Ruald Dahl was more than ready to leave school. Unlike most of his classmates, though, he did not go to college. Here's Rual. I was lucky because I, from the time I left, moment I left school at the age of 18, uh, I didn't want to go to university. I, all I wanted to do was to get a job which would allow me to travel the world. If you think of the time, which was 1933, uh, there were virtually no aeroplanes flying you anywhere. There weren't any. No commercial airline. <laughs> impossible for young people today to understand the excitement of getting on a boat and, and traveling solidly for three or four weeks and finishing up in Africa among the coconut palms. At age 21, while working for the Shell Petroleum Company, Ruwal had most of his teeth pulled out and replaced them with false teeth. He believed that real teeth were more trouble than they were worth with the aches and the dental work. And he talked his mother into doing it too. Ruwal got to see many of the wonders of Africa. The crocodiles became the inspiration for the enormous crocodile. Here's Ruwal's illustrator, Quinton Blake, who Ruwal described as the finest illustrator of children's books in the world today. The first book I did was was The Enormous Crocodile. It says he had hundreds of teeth, I think. Um, So, and I sort of came to do it with like hundreds of, and you know, it's, it's specially for eating children. Soon, he thought, one of them is going to sit on my head and I'll give a jerk and a snap. And after that, it will be yum, yum, yum. <laughs> At that moment, there was a flash of brown. It was Mugglewump, the monkey. Run! Mugglewump shouted to the children, All of you, run, run, run! That's not a seesaw! It's the enormous crocodile, and he wants to eat you up. Here's Ruwal and his daughter, Ophelia. I'm quite prepared to have them killed in the most grisly possible way, like having them, uh, little boys uh, from Eton pulled out of the windows and, and, and eaten by giants, and bones crunched up and everything. That's fine as long as there is a whopping great laugh at the same time. Then, then they love it, you see. So do I, that's why I do it. He liked to shock. That was important. 
because he felt life was shocking. And I think he, he, he also thought it was too easy to look at all the lovely things in life. Although he could do that too, but he just didn't think that people wanted to read about that. World War II was breaking out. Ruwal decided to join the British Royal Air Force, or RAF, in Africa. Here again is Robert Lindsay reading from Dahl's autobiography and Donald Sturrock. I went flying with the RAF in the Second World War. I flew straight to the point where 80 Squadron should have been. It wasn't there. Below me there was nothing but empty desert and, and rugged desert at that. It was nearly dark now. I, I had to get down somehow. I chose a piece of ground that seemed to be as boulder-free as any. My wheels touched down. I, I, I throttled back and prayed for a bit of luck. I didn't get it. I was unconscious for some moments, but I must have recovered my senses very quickly because I can remember a mighty whoosh as the petrol tank exploded. The crash clearly was incredibly important because it became the subject of his first piece of published work. But I think it also may well have changed his personality. He th thought and often said that um, he felt something had changed in him as a result of this crash. They were the head injuries that made him into a writer. After spending five months in an Egyptian hospital, Rual was patched up and then ordered to Greece to fight the German Nazis. Rual flew 12 missions in four days. Every day, he expected to die. And what a story this is. And my goodness, we're learning so much about, well, how this writer became a writer. And it was through experience. He wasn't sitting around in a writer's room with writers at college writing about himself. He was writing about real-life stories. Of course, he was putting himself in as a hero. But it wasn't his biography. It wasn't his memoir. It was imaginative work. And a lot of that imagination sprung from real-life travel. And again, it is hard to imagine that there were no planes at a time. And getting overseas, well, it took a commitment. You didn't just pop on a plane. You were going to Africa. You wanted to go. You weren't just a casual tourist. And then, of course, that World War II experience. And all of this would, of course, impact what he wrote about and how he wrote. Fascinating that he said the head injuries turned him into a writer. And so often that's the case. And we cover that so often here in Our American Stories. The tragedy or a bad circumstance can actually create opportunities and victories. When we come back, the remarkable story of Rual Dahl. And by the way, one of our favorites, even thus far, just watching the reaction here of our storytelling team. Rural Dahl's life here on Our American Story. For more, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. 
And we continue here with our American stories and the story of Rual Dahl. Let's pick up where we last left off. In all his war service, Rual shot down at least five enemy airplanes, and that made him a flying ace. The guilt that he was a survivor lay with him, and in his ideas book, you can still see the names of the pilots who flew there, which he's obviously written down much later and put an X against the ones who've died. Timber Woods, Oofy Still. I mean, there were probably only two or three of the 30-odd pilots in that, in, in that squadron around that time who survived. In 1941, the United States entered the war. Rual took a job in Washington, D.C. at the British Embassy. Here's Rual. I was sitting in my rather grand office in the British Embassy, wondering what to do, and uh, there was a knock on the door, and uh, I said, come in. And a tiny little man came in with thick glasses and uh, said, excuse me, are you busy? And I said, not in the least. No, do come in. And he, uh, he said, my name's Forrester, C.S. Forrester. I said, get on, you know, you can't do that. He's my, one of my heroes, the great writers of that time, Captain Hornblower. He said, now you've been in the war, America's only just coming in. I'll take you out to dinner, or lunch it was. Uh, tell me uh, your most exciting exploit, and I'll write it up in the Saturday Evening Post, and we'll get the British a bit of publicity. So we went out to <laughs> lunch, and uh, I remember we had roast duck. And he was trying to take notes and eat this bloody duck at the same time, you know, and, and he couldn't do it. And, and I said, well, why don't I scribble it down for you this evening in sort of rough way, and then you can put it right when I send it to you. And, and, uh, and uh, he said, well, that would be super. Would you do that? And I said, of course I will. So we finished our duck. And uh, I went home that evening and I wrote this thing out and sent it to him. And I got a letter back uh, about a week later saying, I, I asked for notes, not a finished story. Uh, I didn't touch it. The Saturday Evening Post have bought it once for $1,000. The agent takes 10%. Here's my check for 900 Amazing bucks, stuff. you see. Mm-hmm. I thought, my God, it can't be as easy as all that. <laughs> <laughs> Rual wrote 16 more stories for the magazine. Walt Disney heard about this war hero who wrote stories and invited Rual to Hollywood. Almost the first story that he wrote after shutdown of, over Libya was called Gremlin Law. And it was, this was a story about these little creatures, the gremlins. They were what the pilots and the engineers blamed for unexplained mechanical failures. Although the Disney film failed, Rual's very first children's book inspired the Bugs Bunny cartoon, Falling Hair. Well, get a load of this, folks. It says here, a constant menace to pilots are the gremlins who wreck planes with their diabolical sabotage. Here's Rouen. My first little book I wrote was called The Gremlins, which was bought by Walt Disney. And Eleanor Roosevelt read it to her grandchildren and, and loved this book. And so I got invited to the White House. And uh, we got to know each other a bit, you know, and, and I would go for weekends. Uh, FDR uh, had a, his country place was called Hyde Park, a fast place, and I used to go there. Got to know him. 
Uh, this, I was only a young chap of 26 in an RAF uniform, and I had no business around there, really. Didn't, did, didn't I read that you were a spy? <laughs> no, that's, a, that's an ugly word, a spy. <laughs> no, I, I did. I, I, I worked for um, SIS, yes. My job was to try to help Winston Churchill to get on with FDR and, and tell Winston what was in the old boy's mind in America. You know, I, I, was, I was really not spying against the Americans. I was trying to create amity. Ruas sparred in the boxing ring with Ernest Hemingway. He played poker with Harry Truman. And he became friends with James Bond novelist Ian Fleming. Here's Donald Sturck. Well met Ian Fleming when the two of them were working in intelligence in New York. I thought he was good fun, he was naughty, he was dangerous, he had a bit of edge to him. Rolt had no idea that he would be the later go on to write all the James Bond books. Then in London they saw each other from time to time and it was no surprise when it came to writing a screenplay of You Only Live Twice that the producers turned to Roald rather than someone else to write it. Roald met Patricia Neal, a young American actress in New York City. A Broadway actress, Neal made her film debut with Ronald Reagan in John Loves Mary, followed by another role with Reagan in The Hasty Heart and then The Fountainhead, all in 1949. Here's Patricia Neal. I went to a party at Lillian Hellman's house and I met Roald Dahl there. Now, he really hadn't been heard of. He had written a couple of stories for The New Yorker. Then I sat beside him at supper. He paid no attention to me whatsoever. He just talked to Leonard Bernstein across the table. And so I was a little, well, I want to say off, which I... (laughs) at the end of that. And then he called me about two days later and asked me out, and I said, so sorry, can't go. And uh, then he called me again. Well, I had nothing better to do, so I said yes. When I went out with him, then we got to know each other better, and in the end, I decided I'd better marry him because I did want children. And uh, he was the father of my children. Rual was 37 and Patricia was 27. They had a small wedding in 1952 in New York City and moved into an apartment near Central Park. Here's Ruwald's daughter, Ophelia. This is 26 East 81st Street, where my parents lived in the late 1950s with my sister and brother. They lived opposite Campbell's funeral parlor, which my father liked a lot because he could watch the bodies being taken in and out. And he said that he saw some of them twitching when they were being taken in. But none of the windows of their apartment actually faced the funeral parlor. So that's a lie. In 1955, they had a daughter named Olivia. In 1957, they had another daughter, Tessa, and a son, Theo, in 1960. Here's Ruwal. I used to try to make them up a story every night, which lots of fathers and mothers do. And I found it rather difficult to make a good one every night. But now and again, I would make one, and the next night they would say, uh, do go on with the one you were telling us last night about the peach that grew and grew or something. And when this went on for several nights with one story, which was about the peach that never stopped growing, uh, I thought 
well, why shouldn't I try and write that? So I sat down and started writing uh, James and John Peach. Every night before we went to sleep, my father used to tell my sister Lucy and I a story. He told us about Fantastic Mr. Fox this way, and actually sometime later he told us about the Big Friendly Giant, which was the BFG. And this story just continues to dazzle. What a life lived. And my goodness, what a way to market test a story. If the kids keep, well, expressing interest in this story, maybe he's got one. No focus groups, just his own children making up a story every night. And by the way, we've told quite a number of stories about children's writers. A.A. A. Milnes, Shel Silverstein's, and that's The Giving Tree, Margaret and H.A. Ray, the wife and husband creators of Curious George, and of course, Maurice Sendak, and Where the Wild Things Are. You can go to ouramericannetwork.org and listen to them. That's ouramericannetwork.org. And when we come back, more on the life story of Ruel Dahl. And it's a story like no other we've told here on this show. More after these messages. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. And we continue with Our American Stories in the final segment, the final part of this remarkable story about Rual Dahl. Let's return to Greg Hanger. Just three months after Theo was born, his stroller was struck by a New York City taxi cab and hit the side of a bus. Here's Rual. When he was a baby, his, his, his nurse pushed his pram into a taxi in New York and, and uh, got severe head injuries and developed into hydrocephalus. It, it, it's too much cerebral spinal fluid in the ventricles and, and uh, you get pressure in there. Your brain suffers damage unless you're very swift and quick to relieve the pressure. And, and, and they did have a, a shunt or a, a tube with a valve in it where you could take the, drain the fluid out of the ventricle and down. And, but they weren't very competent, the, 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 the shunts they had in those days that he had to keep going back and having new operations. He had five, because the shunts kept locking, and I said, well, I mean, bugger this, we must be able to make a better shunt than this, and so. I thought of a, a lovely man who I knew was an inventor, who I'd been flying model airplanes with, Stanley Wade, his name was, in Wickham. And what I'd admired so much about him was that instead of buying these tiny model airplane engines, he made them all himself and turned them in his, in his uh, workshop. I said, uh, how about you doing this? He's an eccentric fellow with nothing much to do, and he said, yes, all right. Here again is Donald Sturrock and legendary British publisher and close friend of Rual, Tom Mashler. Saves the lives of thousands of kids all over the world. He made sure it was never sold for profit. That was just the kind of way he looked at a difficult situation. Well, what practically can one do to think one's way out of it? 
the process of invention, it, it, Roald was to get high on it. It, it. it excited him to do it. And the imagination wasn't just to tell a story, it was to give it a magic and to give it a, a quality that only he could think of. I mean, most of the ideas in Dahl's books are... you don't find them in other writers. Sadly, Theo's accident was just the beginning. Two years after that, his eldest daughter died from meningitis following measles. Eventually, he picked himself up and uh, only to, to have three years later another disaster, which was that Pat suddenly struck down by the most terrible stroke in, you know, while, while making a movie in, in, in L.A. When she woke up from consciousness, she could neither speak nor, of course, read or write or walk, having a good deal of paralysis down the right side. Patricia was in the hospital for a month, and Rual was not happy with the progress. So he took charge and brought her home. Here's Lucy and Rual Dahl. My mother was three months pregnant with me when she had three massive strokes. She had just won uh, the Oscar for Best Actress for HUD with Paul Newman. So she was at the top of her career. She could not walk, she couldn't talk, she couldn't read, she couldn't write. He was determined that he was going to get his wife back. And really we learned, Mum and I learned how to walk and talk together. <laughs> when she started to pick up words, she made up, made them up. I made a whole list of them once, and I've, I've, I don't know where they are. She, she used to once say, you drive me crazy. She used to say, you jake my diodles, which is a splendid phrase, you know. I had all my words mixed up. I said words that didn't exist. I think Dad thought, wow, you know, there is, there's a whole other vocabulary here that hasn't been explored that I could have a little bit of fun with, which he did in The Big Friendly Giant. I is not a very know-all giant myself. But it seems to me that you is an absolutely know-nothing human being. Your brain is full of rotten wool. You mean cotton wool, Sophie said. What I mean and what I say is two different things, the BFG announced rather grandly. Rual hired a speech therapist to work with Patricia six rigorous hours a day, every day. He said his wife would be back to acting in a year. The doctors thought he was crazy. Rual forced Patricia to get well. He made her exercise every day. He refused to let her feel sorry for herself. Some people thought he was cruel. Once doctors saw that Rual's tough programming worked, they began using the same methods to treat other stroke victims. As my stroke happened, Rual began to make fabulous money. I is odd how God makes it happen, isn't it? Writing never came easy for Ruwal. It took him months to write a story, sometimes a whole month, just to finish the first page. Ruwal said, it's tougher to keep a child interested because the child doesn't have the concentration of an adult. The child knows the television is in the next room. Here's Ruwal. There's absolutely no question for me that, that uh, uh, writing, we're talking about fine children's books as opposed to fine novels for adults. Uh, the children's book is far, far harder. It's not any harder, it's more important. And, and I think I can almost prove it because there is no writer of consequence in the world or who's ever lived who hasn't had a go at a children's book from Tolstoy to Graham, Graham Greene's done four 
uh, Nabokov, so Bell, anyone you want to mention, uh, has had a go at it. They didn't succeed. Ruald also wrote stories for grown-ups, and they were always short ones. Six of these short stories appeared as episodes on the popular TV show Alfred Hitchcock Presents. He'd spot a sort of psychological situation and then insert a pretty convoluted plot, say, like a, a, a woman murders her husband with a, you know, with a frozen leg of lamb and then, you know, and then serves, then cooks the leg of lamb and serves it to the police officers for lunch who are looking for the murder weapon. I tell you what, why don't you help yourself to some of this, too? Boy, this is great. This piece of meat I've had in months. She said to finish it, didn't she, Jack? Matilda was one of Rewald's last books. He had a hard time working on it. He was diagnosed with a rare blood disease. At one point, he started all over and rewrote every word. Matilda was an instant bestseller when it came out in 1988. Here again is doll illustrator Quentin Blake. In the children's books, he was able to express feelings that he wouldn't have expressed coldly. Rual was able to tap into those feelings when he played with his children. As they so often did, one such moment landed on the pages of Danny, the champion of the world. Here's that moment followed by Ruwald's daughter, Lucy. On a lovely still evening when there was no breath of wind anywhere, my father said to me, Let's make a fire balloon. A tall yellow flame leaped up from the ball of cotton wool and went right inside the balloon. Can you feel her floating? Yes, I said. Yes. Shall we let go? Not yet. Wait a bit longer. Wait until she's tugging to fly away. She's tugging now, I said. Right, he cried. Let her go! We did it from our garden and there are fields all around. And we would just watch in awe every single time. We would say, look at it, look at it, look at it go. Do you think it's going to go left? Do you think it's going to go right? Do you think it's going to go backwards? Which way do you think it's going to go? And then the, the light would go further and further and further away until it would fade away. Both uh, a man, my father and the mother, uh, should be sparky with their children and invent things and go places with them, you know, and uh, make bows and arrows or balloons or I don't know what, but you have to do things with your children. On November 23rd, 1990, 74-year-old Ruwal Dahl was gone. His family buried him near his house with some yellow pencils, wine, and of course, chocolate. Here again is Felicity Dahl. He always said to me, every child had spark in them, but the spark had to be lit. And I think he spent his life lighting sparks for children. Ruwald's life motto was a four-line poem written by Edna St. Moulet. My candle burns at both ends. It will not last the night, but ah, my foes, and oh, my friends, it gives a lovely light. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And what a great story, Greg, and 
What a remarkable life. And in that last episode, that last chapter, my goodness, what, what difficulties his family encountered. First, the son gets struck by a taxi in New York City, all kinds of surgeries. Then, my goodness, his daughter, she dies of meningitis. And then Patricia, his beautiful bride, by the way, see the movie HUD with Paul Newman. It's a classic. And there's, well, there's just not many actresses like her today, Patricia Neal. And my goodness, she suffered multiple strokes and had to essentially rebuild her entire vocabulary and her whole memory. And yet, out of that anguish came remarkable art. And it's so true what he said. Every child has a spark in them, and it does have to be lit. And that's done always through the imagination. And you have to do things with your children. What a crazy idea. And parents who don't, well, you're missing out on all the fun in life and the greatest thing you can do with your life which has been mesmerized by their imaginations and, in a sense, become young again through them. This is Lee Habib, the story of Rual Dal, here on Our American Story. Get more at ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter.